Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Now, this morning, I'm going to argue from this passage that I think we tend to focus on only one aspect of this parable, and Jesus had a, a much bigger message for us. When you develop tunnel vision for the passage, you don't see the whole picture, and it's a beautiful picture as we look at it this morning. We're going to take a look at the three characters in this story. We're going to unpack them through the cultural understanding of Jesus' audience, and then we'll drive at the big picture. So let's start off with the beginning of the story, the younger brother, and that picks up at verse 11. So Jesus begins to teach this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we're going to begin by just hearing how Jesus' audience would have responded to this son's request. It, it would have caused them to recoil, of course. This is from um, a cultural perspective of power play on the son's part. Kenneth Bailey suggests that this son, when he goes and he makes this request of the father, is essentially saying, why aren't you dead yet? I want the inheritance now. So it's a pretty just disruptive, really inconsiderate thing to do within this relationship with this father. Now, as you look at verse 12 in the ESV, it really captures the impact of what the father does as he gives this inheritance to the son. The Greek would have read more like this, that the father divided to him the life. Uh, so the Greek is tan bayon. And one commentator says of this translation that these resources were the father's means for maintaining life, especially in, an old, in his older age. So the son, by, by asking for this inheritance to be divided at this time, is saying essentially, even if he's not saying, I want you dead, dad, he's saying, I want what's mine, and I don't care what happens to you. Dad, give me the money. I've got this. I don't need you to control my life anymore. I'm going to go make it happen on my own. I think we all understand as we look at this parable that that is representative of our relationship with God before we come to Christ in a saving relationship with him. But I want you to see that there's more dynamics in this story than even this first son running away from the father. Let's look at the older, or the father in the story now. We come to that next part of the story, and many of the Middle Easterners listening to this story would have just been shocked at how the father responds. 
I mean, here you have this father. He's the dignified head of the house. He is to be respected, revered in the household. And this son comes to him, and he dishonors him significantly. But not only that, you've got to think it's a son. There's a significant loss, a painful loss that has occurred here. How do you respond when someone offends your dignity deeply? Well, most of us kind of put up some walls in our hearts. We, we put ourselves at a distance from the person. We might say, well, you are making a big mistake and you don't have anything to come back to here. You go off and do your thing. You're dead to me. The text says that the father absorbs the pain. He knows that in order for him to receive the son back at some point, he actually needs to let the son go. And he's waiting to receive him back. So let's pick up the story from there. It says in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robes, put it on him, put a ring on his hand shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead he is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate if you look at the story by way of ancient understanding or even modern understanding we might look at this exemplary father and think how foolish of him this son comes back. He's saying that he's been away. And the father receives him with no preconditions, no public apology, and no questions asked. Now, you have to understand that respected older men in this culture did not do this. And just receive a son back like this. You had to, you know, walk through nails to come back if you've offended your father like this. And they certainly did not run. They did not hike up their tunics and run towards their son. That would be incredibly undignified and embarrassing. But I want you to notice the generosity, too. The robe that the son receives, it's the father's best in his household. The ring, the shoes, both of those are ways of saying you don't need to do anything to get back into the family. You're a part of this family. You're not going to be treated like a servant here. The fattened calf is the best meal that the household has to offer. They would raise this thing. It would be only for occasions of immense celebration where you invite the entire town to come in and, and to take joy. It's like us going to the Brazilian grill, right? <laughs> the father is incredibly generous. In fact, as you look at this story, it's probably inaccurate to call this parable the 
parable of the prodigal son. We should actually call this parable the parable of the prodigal father, because another way to translate prodigal is to translate it as lavish or generous. And here we're seeing a representation of the lavish love of God, the grace of God, the overwhelming deep nature of God's heart. Now, theologians for years have tried to capture the depths of the love of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, he probably said it as well as anyone did. He said, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. It's beautiful language. But you know, Jesus never described the love of God like that. Ever. You know, that, that kind of language, it's, it's very academic, it's very sophisticated, but for many of us, it's very intangible. Uh, we hear those words, and unless you're an individual that loves reading Wayne Grudem's thousand-page systematic theology, you're, you're not really going to connect with that language at a heart level. So how did Jesus talk about the love of God? Well, he talked about it through parables. He would tell stories that dealt with kitchen table concerns. He would bring it into the realm of the tangible by describing the very intimate and close relationship between a father and a son. I was thinking about this just this last week. Katie was like Jesus this week in our Thrive group. We were dealing with the topic of the Holy Spirit. We're in Harry's 10 Steps to Start and Strengthen Your Faith. Wonderful series. I hope all of you go through that. And we were talking about the Holy Spirit, particularly Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And one of, the, one of the members of the class said, you know, I'm not connecting with this. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? I don't want to do that. I would never want to harm my relationship with the Holy Spirit, but it's not connecting. So the teacher, yours truly, went on to wax eloquent in Ephesians chapter 4, and we read the whole chapter together, and I made this sophisticated theological argument as to how the text is saying that you've got to protect the relationships within the sphere of influence in your life, and it did not connect. So Katie came in and saved my bacon, and she said, you know, I think of it like my relationship to my kids. When my children are mean to one another. It makes me sad. And I love them, and there's nothing that they're ever going to do that would cause me to stop loving them, but it certainly grieves my heart when they respond to one another in that way. And guess what? It connected. The lights went on. You've ever struggled to emotionally connect in your heart with the love of God? 
I want to suggest that the theology is great, and you should all read A.W. Tozer. I think he is excellent. But if you want to emotionally connect with the love of God, close your eyes and put yourself in this younger son's shoes. Envision your returning home with your head down. You've just come out of the pigsty, and you see your father opening up the door, running out of the house, breaking all cultural expectations to get to you. Friend, if you can't connect with the love of God like that, I don't know how you're going to connect to it. It's a beautiful picture. And Jesus is saying, look, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been with, God will receive you back. It's an extravagant kind of love. It's even foolish because we think to ourselves, who loves like that? And Jesus is saying, God does. You know, some people just can't accept that foolish kind of love. And that's where the story goes next. We read in verse 25, this older brother, the text says, the older son was in the field, and as he came and and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet never you gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. If you look at verse 28 of this older brother's response to the father, he uses the word anger, but that word really denotes a a seething, boiling anger. You really see it in his words, don't you, as he speaks to the father. He's enraged. Now, this culture The elder brother's responsibility was to be a leader within the family. He was the one who would come in when there were family disruptions, and he would mediate the conflict between the two. So it's all just highly embarrassing right now. He won't even go into the house. He won't barely look the father in the eyes. You have to ask the question, why in the world does Jesus go here? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the story, this parable of the prodigal son, ends at the point of the fattened calf? Everyone's at the Brazilian grill. Everyone's having a good time. We're all celebrating. But the story goes off in this direction. And to understand that, you have to go back to Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Luke tells us before Jesus tells this parable. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So now we understand who these two brothers are representing in the story. 
the younger brother is the sinners and the tax collectors in verse 1. The Pharisees and the scribes are the elder brother, and they're described in verse 2. And through this, Jesus is making two huge implications. The first implication that Jesus is exposing us to is that there are two kinds of lostness. Two kinds of lostness, not one. Now, we tend to easily see the first kind of lostness. We have this category, the person's a sinner. We know what those types of people do. We know to stay away from them. And we know that we're never going to engage in those kind of activities. We can see that. It's all plain and clear to us. The second category, we tend to be blind to. And no one in Jesus' day would have looked at Pharisees and scribes and thought anything but respectful thoughts and attitudes towards them. And Jesus is trying to say this of the text. In the text, he's saying, you can be highly religious and highly respected and be just as lost as any sinner. Now, as you look at the story, you have to actually start comparing what is similar about these two brothers. I mean, look at how similar they are, even if they go about it in different ways. Uh, the first similarity you notice is that both of these brothers are distant from their father, though in different ways. So the younger brother, he's far away from his father. He's in a distant country due to sins of passion. He wanted to live the YOLO life. You only live once. I want to go out and spend all the money and enjoy myself. Why do I got to wait for this old man to die in order to do that? The older brother is distant from the father due to sins of attitude. He's never left the farm, but he left the father a long time ago. And I want to suggest to you that the second brother tends to be farther from the father than the first. Why? Because younger brothers... Once they hit the pigsty and they're like eating the dirt and all of that kind of stuff, they know that something needs to change. I mean, you go into the prison system and you preach the gospel of grace to these guys, you do not have to begin with the premise, you are a sinner. They know that. You don't need to convince them of it. The thing that you need to convince them of is that the father runs out of the house to embrace them and welcome them home. The older brothers, on the other hand, say, why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person. Notice something else about the similarities. Both sons have a transactional relationship with their father. Do you know what it means to have a transactional relationship with someone? It means that you are in the relationship not because of the person and what they mean to you, but because of what you get from them. Now, transactional relationships or treating a relationship as a transaction hurts the relationship. We've experienced this. I remember when I was a younger kid, I had friends who lived on my block who only played with me because I had a trampoline in my backyard. I've been transactional in relationships. I once had a friend come to me and say, you know, it seems like the only time you invite someone out to a lunch or a breakfast is because you're trying to ask them to do something. I was a young pastor at the time. I'm trying to get things done. But ouch, he was right. We do this with our kids. I'm pushing my kids to be excellent because, you know, they could be the best, but it's more about you than it is about them. That kind of relationship destroys the relationship. It harms the relationship. It can never go to the depths 
it could or should. Look at how both of these sons are treating the father. It's all about what can I get from the father in this story. The younger brother wants his now. God, I'm all set. I'll do things my way. I know just how I want to lead my life. Get out of the way. Let me go and do my thing. Elder brothers, they say, I'll obey as long as I get. It's not about getting God. It's not about desiring him or treasuring him. And you know how you can tell elder brothers are being transactional? There's two ways. One way you can tell is they disdain younger brothers. You watch a younger brother walk in the church and elder brothers immediately think, I wonder if everybody knows where they've been and who they are and what they've done. They disdain them. They need to walk through the bed of nails for some time before we can accept them and embrace them in this place. Another way you can tell they're transactional is when they go through suffering. You see, elder brothers have this transactional relationship with God. God, I will read my Bible. I will go to church every Sunday. I'll give generously. I'll do all of these kinds of things as long as you do your part. Don't let me experience suffering. Don't let my kids turn on me. And then when that indeed occurs, because the Bible says you are going to experience suffering in this life, they lose it with God. God, we had this deal. You said on my end, if I do these things, then you would do these things. And I'm looking out in the world and I'm seeing these people who are sinners and they're not experiencing the things I'm experiencing. And elder brothers at that point turn their backs on God. Look at another way that they're both similar. Both sons must come back to the father to find their true selves. You know, the only family member in this story that's not being transactional in the relationships, who's not saying, what have you done for me lately, is the father. What I love about this is that God knows that all people need to find their way back to him. Moral people, religious people, irreligious people, immoral people, they all have a home with the Father. You don't need to go off to some far distant country to find your joy in life and purpose in life and significance. And you don't need to feel like God is your slave master. No. He's the good Father. He loves you. And you come to realize that you've experienced God's grace when you realize who you're supposed to be. Even though you don't deserve it and even though you didn't realize how much you needed it. Now how do we find our way back to God's grace? Well, Timothy Keller observes that Luke 15 takes us in a very specific direction. You have to study this entire chapter and you have to see that Jesus, in response to that attitude of these Pharisees and tax collectors, teaches three parables all in a row. The first parable is about one lost sheep out of a hundred. The second parable is one coin out of ten coins. And both of those parables end the same way. When someone realizes that they're lost, they go to great, great trouble to go and find. And then when they find, it ends with celebration. Everybody's happy. Now you look at the third parable and it's quite different. You see, in this parable, we don't have like a lost sheep or a lost coin. We have a lost son, a lost brother, a lost human being. And think about it. 
Jesus is lining all of these stories up together, and he's inviting us to ask the question when the brothers in the far distant country, who's supposed to go and find him? Who's going to bring him back? Edmund Clowney recounts the true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier. He was missing in action in the Vietnam War. When the family could get no word about him through the official channels, the older son flew to Vietnam and risking his safety, spending his money, putting himself at great danger, he searches the jungles in the battlefields for his lost brother. It's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt because both sides saw his dedication and they quietly respected him. In fact, he developed the nickname in that place as the brother. You see, the elder brother in the parable should have done exactly that. He should have left his home, left the responsibilities of the farm, and gone to that far distant country. He should have said to his father, Father, I know you're advanced in years. There's no way that you can make this trek, but I know how much you love your son, and he's my brother too, and yes, he's being foolish right now, but I am going to leave, and I'm going to go find him. I'm going to spend my own resources. I'm going to take some of the family estate. I'm going to make this trip and bring him back home. Timothy Keller makes this key point. He says, Over the years, many readers have drawn the superficial conclusion that the restoration of the younger brother involved no atonement, no cost. They point out that the younger son wanted to make restitution, but the father wouldn't let him. His acceptance back into the family was just free. This, they say, shows that forgiveness and love should always be free and unconditional. But newsflash, forgiveness is never free. It always costs someone something. The father, when he says to the elder son, when he says to him, everything that I have is yours, was not lying. The younger son, he's gone off to this far country. I mean, he's blown it all. He's been high living. There's nothing left. He's probably in debt to some. So everything that goes to this younger son, the robe, the ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet, the fattened calf, it all belonged to the elder brother. It was his property. And for him to receive the younger brother back into the family, he would have to pay the price in order for him to do this. The problem that we see in this parable is that the elder brother rejects his responsibility. He doesn't want to pay the price for forgiveness. But I'll tell you, church, we have an elder brother who is much better. You see, Jesus is the better elder brother. When you look at him describing the purpose of his mission in Luke 19.10, that's the key verse in all of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And as you think about Jesus' coming to us, he didn't just leave the farm or expend some of his inheritance in order to bring a lost younger brother back home. The Bible tells us that he left the splendors of heaven, that in some way, somehow, he limited himself. He took on flesh. He became like one of us. 
And he gave his precious lifeblood in order that we might come back to God. What more could a big brother give to his little brothers and little sisters? And think about the way he came. He didn't come and harshly, judgmentally confront us eyeball to eyeball and say where you've been is wrong and what you've been doing is wrong. No, the Bible says he came meek and mild to us. He compassionately explained how we could find our way back to God by trusting in him. I have to ask you a question this morning. How do you find your way back to God? Well, the answer the Bible is giving us is you have to trust in your big brother, Jesus. He came. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Well, how do I trust my big brother? Well, the Bible says you put your faith in him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it turns out that if you're in that far distant country, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the only way to come back home is to listen to the big brother and to journey with him back home. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in him? Well, let's take this a step further. You see, when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are like a younger brother coming home and you receive that lavish, generous love from the Father. But you know what happens once you make it home? Your, your role in the family is elevated. You become now an elder brother. The Bible says this, that you must sacrificially go and help younger brothers now find their way back to God. This is what the scriptures tell us. Good big brothers, good big sisters, according to 2 Corinthians 5, they have what is called a ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul says it like this, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. You're no longer a younger brother. You're becoming a bigger brother. You're being changed degree by degree to look like Jesus. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And now, God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. So we are Christ's ambassadors, or think of it, you are now a big brother or a big sister. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. No more than anything, as I think about you, this church, the people that I love, the faces that I know, the hearts I know, I want us to be together good big brothers and big sisters. To this place, to this community, to the neighbors in our spheres of influence, our family members, our workplaces, this mid-Cape region where we are situated, and then beyond, to the region of New England and the Northeast and to the ends of the earth, we need to be good big brothers and big sisters. Just think for a moment as you look around this room. Notice the empty chairs. Look at them. Look, that represents a younger brother or sister that's not here. 
And, and you even go bigger than that because we're just a little church, right? I mean, there's 140 people that can fill this room. If we then extended it to that multi-purpose room, maybe we can get up to 220 people per service. That's 440 people altogether. That's not a lot of people. That's not a lot of younger brothers and sisters. How do we make an impact? Well, I think that the scriptures teach us through a story like this and elsewhere that impact happens one person at a time. So I want to challenge you, church members, to engage in an initiative with me. The initiative is simple. Invite one and journey with them. Invite one and journey with them. You see, as big brothers and sisters, it's our job to invite someone back home and to journey with them as they're reintegrating to home life. Uh, you begin with inviting, right? Tom Rayner said this. He said that 82% of people of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if you just invited them. And you think about all the people that are not in church right now, that means, that indicates that we have not been good big brothers and big sisters. We haven't been asking them. We haven't gone to the far distant country and said, come on home, let's do this. And then we move beyond that, though, and we go to journeying with them. You see, the Father shows us what journeying looks like. He rolls out the red carpet for his lost son. He provides the highest levels of hospitality. It's clothing, shoes, rings, fattened calf. So I'm submitting to you this morning that journeying with someone is far more than come to church with me sometime, bro. It's bigger than that. No, it's meeting them at the door, sitting with them in church, taking them to coffee hour, introducing them to people, saying, hey, I'm really excited. So-and-so is here with me today. I'd love for you to get to know them. It goes further than just simply inviting them to church one time. You need to think of journeying not in terms of weeks, but months and years. If it takes someone a year to integrate, you journey with them through that whole process. Two years, you journey with them through that whole process. You don't treat the relationship as transactional, saying, well, I've gotten them here, I've done my part, now I get to move on. You're here for them. And you take them through a discipleship pathway. What I mean by that is someone attends, and then next they need to experience the fellowship of the church, the community of the church. And then they get into discipleship groups. And then into a one-to-one -one relationship of discipleship. And then you journey with them all the way through, whether it's salvation, baptism, on into membership, so that they can become part of the family. Are you willing to invite one and journey with them? I think that would be crucial. And I want to tell you that that begins with prayer. I love John Bunyan's words. He said, you can do more than prayer after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. So pray. Start there. But then do more than pray. Invite one and journey with them. Bow your heads with me, and I'm going to lead us through prayer in Psalm 103. The psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frames. He remembers we are dust. <laughs> 